Hey, this is Leslie, host of the Rogue Ones podcast. Thank you for listening to this show. You know, I did this limited series in 2018 and 2019. The world was a wildly different place, but knowing that people are still listening to it now and benefiting from these stories brings immense satisfaction. So thank you. If you want to keep up with my own rogue adventures, you can follow me on Substack. Yes, I have one too. An easy link to find that is leslieethompson.com slash Substack. I write on there frequently, but then I'll also post audio vignettes that don't fit into a typical podcast framework. I've been busy, and I bet you have been too, Rogue One. So thanks for tuning in, and I hope to hear from you soon. Now, here's the episode, and I hope you enjoy. You are listening to the Rogue Ones podcast, conversations with extraordinary people doing fascinating things that will encourage us to live with a bend toward the remarkable. Today we talk with someone who works in what one might call a desk job, and we learn that being a rogue isn't just for the self-employed. If you've ever listened to this podcast and thought, how can I apply these principles to my desk job? I can't possibly be a rogue working for corporate America. This episode is for you, and here it comes now. This is Leslie Eiler Thompson, host and creator of the Rogue Ones podcast, back with yet another conversation in which we learn from those going rogue so we can adopt their same attitudes for a life of the remarkable. If you've ever listened to this show and thought, I have a full-time job, I'm not a rogue, or I'm not a musician or a creator, I have a desk job in corporate America, this episode will prove that it doesn't matter where you are. Rogue attitudes are found everywhere. We've spent the first part of this season talking with entrepreneurs and freelancers who are defining their own schedules and projects, most of them in the creative and artistic field. But I don't believe for a second that these types of people are the only rogues on planet Earth. Today's episode explores the journey of someone who spent many years working in the creative industry and left for the world of finance. We talk about his peaks and valleys, and he offers some tangible tips for figuring out why you might not be happy with where you are, and some helpful thought processes to figure a way out. You'll likely relate quite a bit to my guest today, Alan Douglas. He's always felt like a square peg in a round hole until a trip overseas changed the way he viewed himself and subsequently set him on a trajectory of developing a rogue lifestyle toward his career, whether an employee or a freelance professional. And as an ultimate inside scoop, Years ago, Alan and I wanted to have our own podcast called 10 Years Apart. And so I'm going to hop us into the conversation where we are talking about the pseudonyms we were going to host this podcast under Wade Bixby and Eiler Gray. Thanks for listening. Let's jump on in. Okay, so... Wade Bixby, Eiler Gray, we we are these, this was not what we were going to these use. These were the pseudonyms. For, that's right. Yes. And explain yours. Uh, I actually stole it from King of the Hill. Is that that, that's uh, that cartoon movie? Cartoon, yeah. The well, it's not show? a movie show, yeah. Um, okay. Uh, Mike Judge show. And that's that's the name of the um, the news anchor. Oh, on, really? On the show. Why'd you, why'd you take that? Because it was a remarkably bizarre but believable name. Uh, so Wade Bixby, Eiler Gray is, embarrassingly, I had a stage name in high school. Of course you did. I actually started dating a guy, and he didn't know what my real name was. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a joke. It's my maiden name plus Gray, because I just, you know, it's real like, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Actually, Leslie means out of the gray. This Indeed. is a bucket list conversation 
that we are having right now because nearly seven, six, seven years ago, at least, we toyed around with the idea of having a whole podcast series. Series. We didn't actually do it, but the it was going to be called Ten Years Apart mm-hmm. because we are not quite ten years apart. We no. are nine. Generationally, though, we are the next <laughs> generation down from each other. Yes. Oh well, of course, Except, I yeah. you. Uh, and it was the idea of the conversation within music that there are um, people that you listened to. They worked on projects that I listened to. Yes. And so... Yes. The people who had been artists in the 90s that's right. often became producers in the aughts. You are a, a guest on the Rogue Ones podcast. Thank I'm you. I'm thrilled to be here. Hank, your dog is resting yes. quietly beside us. Good boy. Yes. Uh, so the conversation that we are to have today is a very uh, practical conversation, I think, because your idea of being a rogue and certainly how rogue has looked in your life, it has started with a a sort of origination that a lot of rogues start with, which is feeling like a square peg in a round hole. And I'd say I noticed it in college. Everyone in music school was, I'm a jazz guy. And where did you go to college? Explain. University of Miami. Which is a jazz school. Which is known to be a jazz school. Yes. Everybody had their own little box they worked in. Mm -hmm. So the jazz box, the classical box, the, I'm an audio engineer and that's all I do. Um, And I liked the Beach Boys. And what were you studying? Music business. Okay. And this was before liking the Beach Boys was cool. This is the thing about Alan Douglas <laughs> that you all will come to find out, especially when you see his picture. He is a hipster. He really is. And I know this to be true because at one point he said to me, I'm not a hipster. I just, I've liked all of these things way longer than anybody else has without realizing that that is exactly what a hipster says. But to me, a hipster changes their tastes with the okay. times. Okay. And that, I just happened to, for a brief moment in history, like the things that I think a lot of people in society like. Okay, so you were in school at Miami. Yes. In the Beach Boys, which is weird. I was into the Beach Boys, which was weird. Hmm. I didn't want to be a jazz guitarist or a classical pianist or an avant-garde composer. I, I took... Um, great courage and interest and something that I heard some of the Motown musicians say. Well, two things. One, if my role here is to shake a tambourine, I'm going to shake the tambourine. I'm not going to wish I was the bass player who's playing all the cool parts. I'm going to shake the tambourine and be part of a thing. And two, these guys were in their, I don't know, 60s, 70s, and they're like, we're just learning how to play. Which is a very not pop mentality. That is a jazz mentality. That is a blues mentality. It's a constant thing to be learning. It's a constant right. thing to be... It's a discipline. And, and that being said in the, the good sense of the word, it's something to, to continually strive for right. and to not say, oh, I've arrived now. And that's part of, you know, to be hokey, uh, the rogue journey. It is. And that's kind of why we're having this conversation is the idea of there is, there's path A, which is the path of least resistance, which is what you're doing that maybe you hate mm-hmm. and you know you can't do it. There's path B, which is running away to join the circus. Right. And then there's path C, which is right. nobody can tell me what this is going to look like, but I have to make it work. Right. And I will. And here are the ways. Uh, and so breaking this down for you, you were in Miami. And then what was the big thing that kind of triggered the change of thought or the understanding? or, or I found people that liked Brian Wilson. When I said to a group of people, Brian Wilson's a genius, and waited for the onslaught of eye rolls and instead heard 
Well, yeah, of course. <laughs> now, was that when you went to the UK? That right? was in the UK. That was in the UK. Did part of you enjoy that other people didn't get you? Like, is no. that an enjoyable thing to you? No. No. That, that wasn't. It's in more in, uh, into your 30s, you, you do care less. But when you're 19, and no, you don't necessarily. I, I felt confident in who I was. Right. I didn't. I didn't aspire to change to get people to like me more. So you come back and you still have, you muddle through one year. Yeah. And then graduated, <clears throat> got married, moved to Nashville, um, was working in publishing at the time. Um, what kind of publishing? It was a pedagogical publishing and classical repertoire. So I would spend a lot of time in the notation tool uh, hmm. finale. And then while I was here, continued to try to basically work whatever I could to get paid. Yeah. So I just, I did a lot of hustling and scrambling in part because it was the right time to do it in part because you got to pay the bills. Yeah. Did you enjoy that or was that very stressful and and draining for you? uh, It was both. Mm -hmm. Um, There were times of, of being energized by it and there were times of being drained by it. Mm -hmm. Um, Along the way, I think, the the friends and experiences I picked up I wouldn't trade and that's again a common theme through sure. my thread and not just mine but anybody's. So, in the midst of all that, I mean, you, you pick up what you end up learning. What I ended up learning was just how to solve problems. Your problem is you need a, an entire project transcribed. Okay, I can do that. In the midst of hustling and scrambling, I just learned to work hard, which sounds obvious. But I, I, I don't take that lightly, and I don't take it for granted. I worked a full-time job for a great port- portion of that time, and then freelance. And so it's the sort of thing that, I mean, my grandfather did it. My dad did it. Right. It wasn't, it wasn't a new concept. But applying that in my life to say, okay, if I, I need to work 16-plus hours, six days a week, in order to get from point A to point B, and <clears throat> that's, that's just what I'll do. Like, there's yeah. – I'm not going to – try to circumvent that, go around it, go below it, go above it. I'm just going to yeah. do it. So I worked for a record label. I worked for myself. I worked on um, classical music that Billy Joel wrote. Oh, how that, that was, happen? That was a thing that he did for okay. 15 minutes. Um, oh, good. Some, a friend of mine orchestrated it. He, so Fabulous. Billy Joel wrote these classical piano bits, and a friend orchestrated it, so I did all the copy work. Ended up working at a large Music City monolith. One of the big boys. And One I was the there a lot boys. of years and learned a lot of stuff the hard way, the easy way, the good way, the bad way, and the ugly way. One of the most important and most bizarre eras of my adult career. And that's when we cross paths. That is. I remember there was a moment, well, especially because, you know, we have our glasses, right? And there was a moment where what we did, it was for choirs, so there was a lot of paper involved. Like digital stuff, when you're in a choir world, a lot of Mm. paper. So there's one story where I had to bring up, um, the head of the department was supposed to go through and make some edits for something. So I had to bring up just like piles and piles of paper, uh, physical paper, stapled together paper, just two arms full. Mm-hmm. And I go up to the third floor. He's also in charge of the cool, like publishing people. Mm. And they're all having a meeting in his office. and With their iPads. Right. Exactly. <laughs> digital. And everybody's sitting in the circle and all the chairs are facing the door. 
and I show up, my glasses are probably at the tip of my nose because they've fallen down because I couldn't adjust them on the <laughs> way up. You look like the librarian. And I looked like the nerdy librarian. And kicker, I dropped the music by accident <laughs> right as soon as I got to the front door. And it was like everybody in slow motion turns around and look at me. And I just like push my glasses up and, excuse me, these are for you. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where we where our paths crossed. Yes. And when I met Alan, he was in the studio doing stuff, but it wasn't until he left that we realized everything he was doing. And no amount of exit interviews or exit documentation that you put together explained to us <laughs> the full breadth of what you did because that speaks to your hustle ability and that speaks to your um, ability to just do the thing, get it done without people knowing about it. Well, I progressively kept changing what I did and how I did it. And part of that was by necessity. And I ended up, what what I do now is so much has roots in what I did then. The necessity was, it's the music industry in the 2010-ish. Talk us through why that's significant, because a lot of people may not know. Because folks are getting laid off left and right. Because Business models are being upended. Um, the industry's blaming piracy. They're blaming, they're suing people. It's awkward and bizarre. And nobody's really taking responsibility to say, you know what, our business model has changed. And I think they're just now starting to figure out yeah. what their new business model is. And I applaud that. Yeah. You know, Spotify all the way. Right. I listen to it every day. At this point, they're, they're railing and, and raving because they're not selling CDs because nobody wants them. Right. Um, so people are getting laid off. Uh, the department, not including the sales team, the department when I started compared to when I left was 13 people compared to four. So I regularly, because this layoffs happened about every year, I took the opportunity every year to change the operations of the department, specifically around my role. But my role at that point was so, it, it touched on so many things that I was always tweaking how the whole department operated. By necessity. By necessity. Uh, I, I took a look at everything we did and said, what has to be done by an employee? What are the things, you know, whether the legal things, the, the um, quality control, the final set of here's, here's who we are as a brand, that needs to be indoors, inside these four walls. Everything else probably can be outsourced if we do it smart. Well, there's a similar train of thought with a small business, a, a small operation like mine, where you have to say to yourself, what is it that only you can do? Right. It's efficiency right. is what you're working on. You're honing right. the, because you can only right. carry so much. So the first round of things that I did at this company was looking at every production expense dollar and saying, do we really need to spend this? Or do we need to spend it in this way? Can mm. we do this differently? I looked at every dollar and said, how can we do this better? How can we make more with less? And then the second round was kind of what I alluded to earlier. Once we saved all that money, how do we take what can be done, what should be done here, and how do we create a pool of people who are trusted, reliable, super high quality, super timely, and get the rest of the work done? While I'm helping the company do what they do better, I'm also creating a role that I like better for myself. I was going to identify where it was a true win-win and make right. it happen. So, And that's something interesting about you that I would love to touch on a little bit is um, I think there are a lot of people that look at their current roles and they're not quite happy with them. And 
they know they see ways that they could be more efficient, save the company money, do just do better things, create win-win situations. What about how did you actually go about doing that, making those changes? Did you just happen to have employers that were like interested and willing? Or did you just do the thing and you just I did a lot of asking forgiveness and not permission. Mm. If I saw something that needed to be done, I just did it. Okay. And occasionally I got my knuckles wrapped with a ruler, but the results were there. Right. And even even a, a poor manager can see when results are there. Right. So the fact that we were getting things out on time, relatively close to budget, better than it had ever been, um, in some cases under budget, can't really argue with the mechanism if the if the mechanism works. Right. I, I kind of took on more and more of what I wanted to do, stripped away the things I wasn't interested in or I didn't feel I was good at. It was about maximizing my value for the for the company and also maximizing what we as a department did that was bringing value and how we were operating. Um, so I, I got, I became very entrepreneurial within Absolutely. a corporation, yeah. which there's apparently a term for that. The which is? Intrapreneur. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Grown. Wow. Grown. Ended up in a corner office on Music Row with two walls of windows. Whatever question somebody had, I had an answer, uh, mm-hmm. which is a nice place to be. Right. Um, and, and you had a place. You were you had a place in the community. Yeah. And you were a staple. A, a great, Everybody knew Alan just Douglas. A, a great crew. And I, I miss that crew. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what I miss the most about that era was the crew. You also had a mini fridge. I did have a mini fridge. That was the thing I was the most jealous about. <laughs> So, so corner desk, I have corner office. corner office. I have. I'm working in these incredible recording studios. Top, top shelf notch producers and engineers and and um, musicians. And then I left. You defected. I did. I said, "Okay, this is done now." I took a huge left turn and went to a financial services organization, which sounds lame, but it has been anything but lame. It's so rogue of you. <laughs> There, there becomes a, an unspoken rule that is, this is as good as it's going to get. You, you've made it. You have the corner office on Music Row. There are a bunch of people who have never had that, who would love to have it. And that's a, that's a true statement. But there becomes this thing where it's like, well, well then I better not, I better not leave because right. the grass is surely not greener somewhere else. Right. And what was funny is it was not everything I'd ever worked toward. I didn't have words for it when I was 20. But I realized, maybe when I was 30, that what I really wanted out of music didn't actually exist. It had stopped existing sometime in the mid-70s. Okay. Meaning a group of people, a kind of a core group of musicians, engineers, who are making music, they all have a, a, a piece of the puzzle. The Motown idea. Motown. The tambourine Stax Records, Memphis, Wrecking Crew, L.A. They're playing on all these incredible songs. It just so happens all those people play it on famous records we all know. Right. But it really was, they were part of a a crew. They were part of a scene. Um, um, Tooth and Nail Records had this. Gene Eugene is still one of my heroes, though I never met the guy, because he produced all these records by all these bands that meant so much to me. I didn't realize when I was 20 that, they were all like living on couches then. And that really huh. was not a sustainable way of life. If right. you want to have a family and if you want to do the things that were important to me personally. But I realized, oh, that 
this is great. I'm really glad for this journey. I'm glad for the chance that I can say, I can tell whoever, my grandkids, my coworkers in India, about these great recording studios I used to work in and the absolute best musicians you can even begin to imagine sight-reading music that sounds like they've been playing it for 30 years. Yeah. But that was great. That wasn't something I wanted to do when I was 50. And exiting music when you're 50 is hard. And I thought, you know, I'm always going to love music. And there's a certain uh, prestige in working in music. But that doesn't have to define me or my career. Right. Just like I kind of rejected the labels at college, I kind of reject the label of, oh, you're working for a financial services organization. You must, you must have failed somehow. Uh, I always said, ironically, I always said, I don't want to be pigeonholed. And even now I say, I, I, re- I enjoy what I'm doing. But I'm not, I'm not going to be pigeonholed. So there's this, again, that entrepreneurial um, motif of I want to be part of something. But just when I get comfortable, I change it again. But e- you can even not be an entrepreneur and have this idea that I want to be a part of something greater than myself. And that's going to mean changing and evolving, evolving and shifting. But what you did all those years in the music industry was constantly being effective and finding new ways to be effective and streamlining and processes and how mm-hmm. can we change things, which is what you're doing now. Which you, is, yeah, I'm getting paid to do it now. Right. <laughs> so right. it's kind of a win-win. Um, and really all of that, I feel, rolls up into the term innovation. And that's a term that has been probably overused in the last several years. But efficiency, streamlining, workflow optimization, process improvement, um, it all works into the idea of continually challenging how you do what you do. And that's where I come to the thought that rogue is not what you do. I think a lot of folks kind of default to, if I'm a bohemian artist, if I'm a graphic designer, there's certain, there's certain un, again, right. the unspoken rules of what, what kinds of jobs are rogue. I reject that. I say, no, rogue is not what you do. It's how you do what you do. I I even reject the idea that entrepreneurs and employees are mutually exclusive. Um, I I feel I have have lived that exception. I I don't think it matters if you're a freelancer, an employee, an entrepreneur, whatever you want to call it, you can make almost any job more rogue and how how you operate and how you view it. Uh, And part of that is just recognizing that with few exceptions. There are some jobs that should not be rogue, but most jobs, if you step out, zoom out, and you say, what am I doing that is repetitive, that is redundant? You're already taking steps toward being rogue. And if you view yourself as a cog in a wheel, then then that is a self-defeat. You literally are viewing yourself as a cog in the wheel. It doesn't matter if the people above you view you as a cog in the wheel. It matters how you take hold of your operations, how you how you look at it, how you think about it. Um, and it, you know, if you had told me when I was 18 and in the music school at Miami that I'd be doing what I'm doing now, um, I probably would have had a panic attack. <laughs> but then if you had told me that I would actually enjoy it, I probably would have had a heart attack. But the the reality is I'm actually more creative now in many ways and I have the freedom to be creative in so many ways. 
more so than when I worked in a quote unquote creative industry, creative environment. Now, again, having the freedom to be creative, I'm solving business problems. You have to be creative. I, I kind of reject, I'm rejecting a lot of things today. I reject the left brain, right brain. I'm not saying that there are not people, you know, there people are wired differently and right. we, we allow for that and we applaud that. Right. Um, but if you're right-brained, that doesn't mean that you can't be organized to an extent. Right. If you're left-brained, that doesn't mean that you can't be creative. I think sometimes we use that sort of lie as an excuse. You know, somebody will say, oh, I'm not creative. And I think, yar, you may not you be artistic. You just might not be able to play a guitar. Right. You might not know what makes good artistry or be musical or be whatever, but that doesn't mean you aren't creative. And right. I think that is a lie that, and it's not a malicious lie, no. but it's an easy way to say, oh, I'm creative. I'm into like moody things and music. Right. And or I'm not that. creative. Therefore I have nothing to offer. Right. Exactly. You hand me your TPX report because that's right. all I'm good for. Mm-hmm. And, and that's just not true. That's, mm-hmm. that's limiting. That's restricting. That's not, that's not respecting oneself. Right. That's not valuing the contributions that somebody can bring, whether it's you or whether it's somebody on your team or whatever else. So going back to this, you did a lot of hustling in your early part of your career. What did it feel like to not have to do that very much anymore when you switched to this new role in a new company that was not musical and suddenly, I mean, let's just be frank, you were making more money than you've ever made because the music industry doesn't pay anything. that's one of the reasons I left it. I mean, it's one of many, but it's... I was tired of shoestringing it. Right. And so now you are kind of in this thing that years ago you were like, I am pushing so that this, so that one day this can be our reality. And I I come back to another phrase I think of a lot, um, and it's dramatic, but it is innovate or die. And that is what a rogue does. Mm. Um, That is what successful business strategies and business models are built on. That is what successful artistic Musical careers are built on. The Beatles are the Beatles because they never did the same thing twice. You mm. two, as much as maligned as they can be, because maybe they should have retired 20 years ago. Hope you're not listening, Bono. Um, I hope you are listening, Bono. Actually, for for the record, yes, yes I do. Sake, I Bono, do. if you're out there listening, please give me a call. And then retire. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the great business careers and the great music careers are constantly innovating. Bob Dylan is Bob Dylan because he's bizarre and he doesn't do what's expected of him right um those who do what are expected of them you we're not going to talk about them because we don't remember their names so for those of us who are 10 years behind someone wise like you <laughs> what, what are some <laughs> but what, what is a practical way that when we do have these two things that you know we're trying to make a decision or we're trying to think about what what opportunity should i take what are some ways that you have learned to mm you know, make those decisions. Um, Just a little bit of wisdom there from Mr. Bixby would be (laughs) so good. So um, there was something we used to say in the freelance music world about should you take the gig or not? Mm -hmm. And there were three considerations. And I have found since leaving the music industry as a full-time vocation, I have found that this has resonated with a lot of people that have never even worked in music. So I think it, it bears saying. Um, the three considerations, to, you're going to take the gig, yes or no. One, is the hang any good? Meaning, are the people any good? Would you like working with these people? Two, is the music any good? Would you enjoy the music? Is it something that like nourishes you? 
because when you get down to it, you know, there is something deeper personally about music than there is about Excel. And that's okay. Right. Three, is the money good? Money's money. That's pretty self-evident. That's right. So the line always was, if you get two out of the three, take the gig. Mm. If you get the hang and the music, so the people are great, the music is great, as long as you're able to pay your bills, the money's less important. If the money is great and the people are great, then the music can be terrible. And there's plenty of people on tour right now with exactly. names you would recognize that I'm sure feel that way. They're That's the right. bass player for XYZ and they're making a great living. They love the people in the band and the life on the road, but like they never listen to the music. And then um, if the music is good and the money is good, well, and you don't want to work with jerks forever, but you can work with them for a season. So if you translate that out of the music world, it's the same principle. That's it, right. Is, do, do you enjoy your work? Is it challenging? Is it uplifting? Maybe that's the mission, but maybe that's the actual work. That's the operations. That's the daily getting the stuff done. Do you like the people? Are the people people you'd want to work with? They might be people you want to hang out with on Friday night, but they don't have to be. Right. They can just be people that are really good at their jobs mm -hmm. and that make your work life interesting or challenging in a good way or um they're just effective right and money's money it's again pretty obvious so the rare times you get all three just soak up every minute of it exactly because they don't last right they might last for a day they might last for a year um they might last for 10 for the occasional few you know these three considerations can happen whether you're considering being an employee of a company mm -hmm. or whether you are self-employed or yep. whether you're a freelance person. Obviously, that's the context from which it came. When If a new client were to come to me, those are exactly the things I need yeah. to examine. If you're an employee, evaluate it through that lens. That's right. Um, and it might provide some clarity. If you, don't, if you don't particularly love your job, it might show you why. You know, oh, Absolutely. I only have one out of the three. Well, no wonder I don't like my job. Absolutely. Hey, what can I do to adjust those other two? Right. Maybe I need to look for something else. But maybe I can. That's a really good point you make. There's a defeatist attitude where if mm -hmm. you were to look at that and say, no, I don't either. I don't even have one of the three or I have one of the three or whatever. Do what you can to change it. And if you can't, then your attitude needs to become, then I, I need to leave well. I need to yeah. finish my time here and leave well and go on to something else. Right. Because and it's not, a, it's not a greener pastures thing. It's a, I'm going for two out of the three. That's right. right. Now I have zero to one. I'm going for two out of the three. Therefore... I have no ill will toward this place of the zero or one. It's That's fine. Right. Because if you're not functioning in a two out of three mindset or a two out of three reality, chances are you aren't being a very effective uh, contributor mm -hmm. to the situation. Right. So you leaving and finding a better place is really better for everyone else. Right. But the trap is to become this defeatist attitude where I would go home to my husband and whine and complain, mm -hmm. you know, and he got to a point where he said, I, I can't help you. And it's true. He couldn't. Yeah. Uh, so I changed my mindset. Well, I got to do something else. Yeah. I'm going to hire a career coach. We're going to talk through some things. We're going to scrape the bottom of the barrel and figure out what yeah. to do next. And again, rogue is what you do, how you do. It's just applying this into daily operations is the challenge. And that's, and that is also the opportunity. Right. Work matters. The things that we do do matter, especially where we're intersecting with people, um, whether they're friends or colleagues or clients or whatever else. That matters. Right. All of those improvements that I made at the former company that I mentioned earlier, 
whether that was saving production expenses, whether that was changing the operations, all of that since I've left has, has been changed again. The money's been spent. Yes. Um, the budgets have probably ballooned, and that's okay. Right. Um, I think 10 years ago I would have been very angsty about that. I would have been like, but I, but I, I achieved this thing, and now that thing is gone. And, mm. and it, what we do matters, but it, and we also got to hold it loosely. We got to right. realize, like, everything I did there, it was meaningful, and I'm glad I did it, and I am thrilled for those opportunities. But they were also castles in the sand, right. and it just takes one wave, and that's okay. Mm. Wade Bixby. Mrs. Isler Gray. It's been good. Indeed. Clinking our Diet Coke glasses together. I still have some left. Mm. Thank you for joining me. It's a good conversation yeah, about being a rogue. Thank you for joining us for this special episode of the Rogue Ones podcast. I really felt like we touched on some topics that we haven't yet talked about and that a lot of people are probably desperately wanting someone to speak into. If you liked this episode, be sure to check out my conversation with Michael Schwalbe. He was also working in a cubicle on Music Row, and then he decided to move to L.A. to become a voice actor. Find this episode and all the others at RogueOnesPodcast.com. As always, a special thank you to Ryan Swinehart of Sick Island Studios here in Nashville, Tennessee. He does a fabulous job of making sure whatever comes out of my computer at the end of the editing process sounds great on your device. So thank you, Ryan. So thank you for joining us on the Rogue Ones podcast. We will see you next time. Thank you.